Excellent singing, church. What a joy to, to be able to do that with you. Um, it is a joy for me to have a good buddy of mine. Um, many of you know him, but there are several of you that don't, and so I just want to give a, a brief introduction to my good friend, uh, Junior Jam Rionvent. He, um, he and I go back to seventh grade. Isn't that crazy? Uh, 32 years of friendship, and um, you know the, the significance of our relationship can't be overstated because Junior was instrumental in me coming to faith. When I had said a prayer and thought that I was a Christian but wasn't living like a Christian at all, he witnessed that all throughout high school. And when I went off to junior college, East LA College, he went off to Bible college, and he would come down um, pretty regularly, uh, concerned for my soul, and would confront me on my fake profession and would tell me that I wasn't really a Christian, that I wasn't living like a Christian, acting like a Christian, talking like a Christian, thinking like a Christian. And so I think back to those days where initially I was so upset and frustrated and angry at him. And now, looking in retrospect, I am so thankful for this brother, for him challenging me, and for him telling me like it is, that you have not truly repented and given your life to Christ. And so I'm thankful how the Lord has used him. He went to uh, Biola in Talbot, and we won't hold that against him. I guess you don't have like rivals in, you know, Christian universities, but being at Masters and playing against Biola, you know, we didn't like them very much, but I'm grateful for that school, grateful for the church that he's serving at, Grace EV Free. We've had Dr. Eric Tonis here to preach for us, and uh, Dr. Tonis has uh, discipled and mentored Junior for, for many, many years. We're thankful for Katie and for all their kids that are here with us, Joelle and Elena and Elijah and little Gabe, and I'm just so thankful, brother, for the way that the Lord has used you significantly in my life. In fact, uh, if it was not for Junior, I probably would not be here as the pastor. He was also instrumental in getting me here, walking alongside every step of the way, providing counsel. So, brother, why don't you come up and open up the Word of God and bless us, please. Man, I, I sound kind of like a great guy, don't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that intro, Dominic. Uh, welcome, Grace uh, Monterey Bay. It's always a pleasure to be here. And again, Dom occasionally asks me to preach, and I get that wonderful privilege this morning. So please pray with me. Father God, thank you for life, another day of life, and you promised that to no one. May we receive it in gratitude. May we receive from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As Dominic already mentioned, I went to Biola University, and when I was an undergrad, I was taking this class, Theology One, by Dr. Eric Tonis, who is a dear friend and one of my current pastors at Grace EV Free La Mirada. And in this particular class, he was showing a clip of the Oprah Winfrey show, and he prefaced the clip by saying how influential she was that her show is booked years out. It's almost impossible to get in. And anytime she recommends a book, it's sold out instantly for months. Uh, I was just curious. I looked up what her net worth was, and it's approximately $2 billion. What is this show even about? Good grief, $2 billion. Uh, but this particular show um, was about God and religion. And I don't even remember... Uh, who the guest was, what her name was, or what her title was, or why she was even asked to be on this show. But I do remember how she described Jesus. And she described Jesus 
by saying he was one of many spokes on a wheel, meaning that God is at the center of this wheel, and Jesus just happened to be one of the ways to get to God. And in our Western society, uh, this is a very prominent idea that there are many ways to God, there are a variety of ways to God. Not only are there many ways to God, but you, the individual, gets to determine that path. And we certainly like our choices and option. Religious pluralism rules the day. And I remember before I became a Christian, I totally bought into this idea. I mean, who am I to tell other people how they should relate to God? I mean, I relate to God the way I want to. You relate to God the way you want to. Hey, kumbaya, peaches and cream. Everybody gets to just get along. But then I became a Christian, started reading the Bible, and I was like, wait, what? Where did this idea come from? It didn't come from the Bible. And you would think people who wanted to know how to get to God would go into his word and see what he says about himself. But the problem is, when Christianity teaches that there's one way to heaven and one way to God, well, that's too narrow-minded for people. And it's really used as a pejorative, and it has a negative connotation. People believe, oh, you can possibly think that. That's so backwards and, and dated. And it's even viewed as morally reprehensible because you're excluding other people's beliefs. But in our passage today, Jesus is very clear that many will try to enter the kingdom but won't be able. And people believe that casually knowing Jesus will be enough to enter the kingdom, that being acquaintances is adequate to have access to true knowledge of God. But that's not enough. You must know Jesus deeply and intimately and be known by him. And that's not as easy as it sounds. It takes effort, but it's worth it because eternity hangs in the balance. And Jesus is very clear. It's going to take exertion. It's going to be a fight, and that fight is going to cause lots of agony. But Jesus doesn't shy away from the hard truth, speaking the truth, because true evangelism is not ambiguous. It is clear. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, in our text today, Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. Luke 13, 22 through 30. Starting in verse 22, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, I ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west, and from north and south, and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last 
who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And here, starting in verse 22, we see that Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. He's teaching and preaching. And any time in this section of Luke that you see Jerusalem, it's a geographical reminder that Jesus is headed towards a particular end, which he explicitly stated in Luke 9, 22, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And this must happen in Jerusalem. So as you're listening through uh, the story of Luke, it's, it will culminate in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And here in our passage today, somebody on his way to Jerusalem in verse 23 asks, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And the passage doesn't say who this person was, doesn't give a title, a name, or how influential this person was. Regardless, there was this widely held Jewish belief taught by rabbis that the Israelites would enter the kingdom of God based on the fact they were descendants of Abraham, based on the fact of their nationality. This could be a Jew following Jesus, just simply asking the question to maybe affirm that idea. Or it could have been a regular follower of Jesus, just asking him, hey, where is this all going to end up? What's your ministry going to amount to? How many people are going to be saved? Either way, Jesus doesn't answer the question directly, but according to Jesus, the line of demarcation between believer and non-believer and the saved and unsaved, it's not nationalistic, but it's distinctly spiritual. So he doesn't give a number, but he uses the question as an opportunity to teach the people who were there with him. So he doesn't address the individual, but addresses them, them being the people gathered with him at that time. So here in verse 24, and he said to them, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, I feel like I need to back up a minute and kind of build a framework before we get into the rest of the passage, because this passage could be easily misunderstood. So I want to be clear what this passage is not teaching, and it's not teaching works-based salvation. It's not saying to try to earn your way into heaven or to gain God's approval through merit or trying to get through this narrow door by our own self-determination. No, we're not saved by our effort or strength of will. We're saved by the gospel, and the gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith, and that faith is not even of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And the gospel is, the gospel sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life of obedience, dying on the cross for our sins, buried and resurrected on the third day, thus appeasing the wrath of God. And the only way we could receive that forgiveness is by asking for that forgiveness and placing our faith in that finished work of Christ, repenting of our sins, committing our lives in service and love to him then the Lord will look on us just as pure and holy as Jesus because we've been imputed his righteousness. And because of this alien righteousness, we are now reconciled to God and we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. That's the gospel. 
So let me bring up two categories here, two categories, security and assurance, security and assurance. And I know there are a lot of preachers and teachers that may use these terms, these terms synonymously, and there is quite a bit of overlap, but for the purposes of today, I want to focus on their distinction. So first, security. Security is objective. Security is objective, meaning that the Bible teaches eternal security. That is, it teaches that if you've truly placed your faith in Jesus, you have union with him, and that union will last forever. Another way to say it, that if you're truly a regenerate child of God, you cannot cease to be a child of God. And if you are a child of God, God will work the perseverance in you. For I'm sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, I may also believe you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1.13. And the purpose of a seal is that it cannot be broken. First 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here, our security is, not, is dependent on not our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of God. And when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished. He didn't add a footnote that said, you know what? I did most of the heavy lifting, but you're going to need to take it the rest of the way. No, he didn't say that. And if our salvation is not dependent upon our personal merit, then why would keeping our salvation be dependent upon our personal merit? And we should be extremely grateful for that. Because if there's any way that I could lose my salvation, I guarantee you I would figure it out. The depths of my depravity and wickedness knows no bounds. So losing your salvation doesn't make theological sense. It doesn't make exegetical sense. It doesn't even make logical sense. If you could lose eternal life, it wouldn't be eternal now, would it? Yeah, I had a eternal life for a couple of weeks, but I botched it and, and messed it all up. No, that doesn't make any sense. So second category, assurance. Assurance is subjective. Assurance is subjective, meaning, well, how confident are you that you're truly saved? And that's going to vary from person to person. Later in the passage, you're going to see that many people were confident that they would get in, but it turned out they weren't. So just the mere fact that you're confident doesn't mean that you're truly saved. So how do you know that you're truly saved? So a subcategory for assurance is first individual assurance, individual assurance. So we have the objective reality, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now we have the subjective reality of our faith expressed in our sanctification, like we read in our article this morning. So sanctification is our internal condition. It's a moral change that happens at our conversion. We become different people because we're new creatures in Christ. We're no longer ruled by sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God, 1 John 3, 9. So sanctification is progressive. It happens throughout our lifetime and is completed at death. 
One of my classmates in Romans class, I love that he said that, I've remembered it ever since, but he describes sanctification as sanctification is the working out of our justified position. Sanctification is the working out of our justified position. Meaning, our justified position, because we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, God sees us just as righteous as Jesus Christ. But are we, practically speaking, as righteous as Jesus? Well, no, certainly not. We fall short. We struggle with sin. We waver in our faith. But as we progress and mature in our faith, we're reflecting more of that image that we've already have, positionally speaking. So the question is, are we growing in the image of God? Are we manifesting the fruits of the Spirit? Are we growing in our affections for the Lord? So the difference between believer and non-believer is primarily our affections for God, our love for God, our desire to be obedient to God. It's a difference when people who believe on the basis of just to avoid hell and harm and those who believe because they see the glory of Christ and they see Christ as more beautiful and desirable than anything else. And the more our affection grows for Christ, the more we're shaped by his character. And the more that we're shaped by his character, the more we are assured that we're one of his children. And the more obedient we are to God, the more we're sure that we're truly saved. The more we grow in confidence in God, the more assurance that we could believe we are his possession. And God wants us to have this assurance. In Hebrews 10, 21 through 23, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So you have individual assurance. Now you also have communal assurance. Communal assurance. What is that? Well, that's the body of believers. That's the church. Yes, the church helps confirm your priesthood in Christ, your, your, your childhood in the family of God. And if you're a professing believer and you're not part of the local church, you are sinning. In Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So see, when you spend time in fellowship, when you come in week in and week out, people begin to get to know you. They begin to see your character. They see your desires. They see the fruits of the Spirit and can yet, yes, affirm, oh, man, this person's a believer. Now, does that mean we get it right all the time? No, I've been fooled on more than one occasion. But generally speaking, I think we get it right most of the time. And because assurance is subjective, there's going to be moments that we struggle in our faith. There's going to be moments where we waver in our faith. There are going to be seasons where we struggle with sin. But see, the fact that you're still battling that fight shows the Spirit working in your life. That even though you have this sin that you're struggling with, the fact that you're still fighting shows the preservation of God in you, that you just didn't give in to it. Okay, I'm struggling with this for years, and I just gave into it, and it's a part of my life now. You haven't gone there. And it shows the spirit of word. That's fruit of the spirit. 
And this is why the church is so essential, because within the community of believers, we're to encourage one another in those times of doubt and wavering, because we will have them. And when we don't live lives that's honoring to God, we speak the truth in love and bring and call that brother or sister back into the fold, because you're not acting like family. And that's what we do as family. So again, I want to be clear. With that framework in mind, with those categories in mind, this passage is not talking about earning your way to heaven, namely our security. What it is talking about is talking about assurance and having confidence that you are truly saved. So Jesus doesn't give a number to the question, hey, how many will be saved? But he says, make sure you're one of them. And in verse, back to verse 24, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The key word here is strive, which means to make every effort to enter. It's this Greek word agonizomai, which means to agonize, where we get our English word agony. It means engaging in an athletic competition. Listen to a few of these passages in the New Testament that uses the same word. So first, Colossians 1, 28-29 says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, agonizomai, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, agonizomai, fight, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Every athlete, agonizomai, exercises self-control. The NIV translates it strict training in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reef, but, an imperishable, but we an imperishable. So it's talking about an athletic competition, you know, speaking of athletic competition, you know, basketball has been such a big part of my life for so much of my life and for so many reasons. And uh, I still talk to my old uh, high school coach, Rick Ronquillo, who also happened to be uh, my youth pastor. My goodness, I don't know how many times I've called and apologized to him, how much of a bonehead I was in high school. So if you're a youth pastor out there, there's hope, brother. There's hope. Uh, but he's a dear brother in Christ, influential in um, myself and Dominic coming to the Lord. And we talk about basketball all the time. And I remember when I was 38, I still felt really light on my feet, agile, athletic. I remember, man, man, these young guys still ain't got nothing on me. And then I hit 40. I don't know what happens at 40 where 60% of your athleticism goes down the tube. But man, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I started getting sore, and it lasted for days. I couldn't move quite as well. It was running and jumping got painful. I was like, oh, what, what is this? What, what's going on? I started taking Advil like M&Ms. <laughs> you feel me? You feel me? And so finally, I was, I was emotionally distraught over this. I was like, what happened? All this work, and now it's gone. So I finally called Rick, and I asked him, hey, when did you quit playing, and why? And Rick told me, well, when I got in my 40s, it just got too painful. And I said, well, that, that's a coincidence. Coincidence. 
And then we start talking about basketball and the journey we've taken as players. He has a really talented son that we talk about. And I always bring up the fact that uh, when we were in high school, when I was in high school, now I was a terrible high school player. And I'd bring up, hey, remember, uh, you put me in the game. And I, as, as a scorer's table, I was so nervous to making mistakes when I got into the game. I just made a bunch of mistakes. You know, the game was so fast. I couldn't keep up. And yeah, I just wasn't that good. But then I decided, you know what? I want to get good at this. I want to get really good at this. And I was like, all right, here I go. I'm going to give my life to this. And through hours and hours of training, going hard at practice every day, lifting weights, drills after drills after drills, putting myself to the brink every day. I felt like my lungs were going to explode and every part of my body was just set on fire. I remember Tuesday nights, we had open runs. We'd play just all night. It was the team. It was alumni. They would bring their friends. And we'd just play all night, Tuesday nights. And after everybody was done, I'd ask the assistant coach. I was like, hey, Kurt, could you just leave me here? I still, I still want to keep playing. He's like, yeah, sure. Just lock the door on your way out. They turn off all the lights. There's just enough light to see the rim. I'm in there in the dark gym just shooting hoops working on my game. It's just me and a family of raccoons. And I remember I would leave, and it was pitch black in the parking lot. I didn't even know what time it was. I just went home, showered, slept, did it all over again the next day. And through 10,000 hours of blood, sweat, tears, and deep agony, through this process, I noticed something. The game started slowing down. I started seeing plays develop two or three frames ahead before they actually happened. I grew confident. All that fear was practically gone. I wanted the ball in my hands in the biggest moments and in the biggest games. I didn't care anymore. And I started enjoying this game in ways I didn't even think possible. Well, what do you mean enjoying basketball in ways you didn't think possible? <laughs> Let me give you an example. There was this tournament in Pasadena, and the more you win and you keep going and you keep playing, and what I used to do before games, I would try to chum up with the refs, try to get some calls during the game. It never worked. It never worked. It didn't stop me from trying, though. But this particular set of referees, there was one, one of the refs just very stoic, just like the Terminator. Actually, he looked kind of mad. Maybe he was upset he didn't even want to be there. So the game's going. I'm playing. Game's going great. It's just a heated battle. It was a close game. But then even in the middle of the game, I looked over at the ref and I said, before this game's over, I'm going to make him smile. So, so happened, weeks leading up to this tournament, I was working on this post move, and I just told my teammates, hey, hit me in the post. I want to try something. So I get the ball in the elbow, measuring up my opponent, getting him leaning, and then I do this Akeem Olajuwon spin move baseline, lay it up and in before the center had time to rotate over. And in one fluid motion, I ran down the sideline where that ref was, and I looked right at him, and as I'm running back on defense, I say, come on, man. You know you like that spin move. And he cracked a smile, and I was like, yes, yes, that's a win. That's the game within the game. And if you would have told me back in high school that, man, in, this middle, in the middle of this heated competition, you're going to enjoy this game at multiple levels, I would have said, man, you're crazy. No way that's possible. Now, if it sounds like I'm reliving my glory days, well, yes, yes, I, I am a little. So thank you for indulging me those few minutes. You know, feel like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> but the point being, in that same way, that determination, that focus, that agony, we pick up our cross daily. 
We read our Bibles every day. We pray. We love our spouses. We love our neighbors. We don't neglect the gathering of the saints. As we do these things, we're putting in blood, sweat, and tears, betraying ourselves up for righteousness and godliness. It takes exertion to read your Bible every day. There's going to be times where you don't feel like reading, but you do it, knowing that in the end, there's going to be enjoyment and the building up of your own soul. It takes exertion to get your family ready every week and to come every week. It takes exertion to get in each other's lives, to build relationships in meaningful ways and inevitably offend one another, hurt each other, and sin against each other. And that's why the command to forgive one another, it takes exertion and agony to work through that. But that's why we're the community of believers. That's why we're the family of God. It's up front telling you this is going to be hard, oh, but it's going to be worth it. And as we train ourselves up in godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. 1 Timothy 4.8. And when you train yourself in godliness, you begin to see the beauty and the majesty of Christ more acutely and plainly. You begin to enjoy life in ways you didn't think possible. Your relationships become better. Your perspective becomes clearer. Your purpose is more distinct. So this striving into the, this narrow door, narrow being the adjective that describes this door, huh, clearly this doesn't mean some grand adorned gateway with easy access. No, it's narrow. It's difficult to enter. And to the world, that is less inviting. And it's less inviting because it requires strength and struggle. And of course, if given the choice, people would rather have an easier way, a more inclusive way requiring very little sacrifice, if any, at all. And that's why the world latches on to this idea that there are many ways of God. There are a variety of ways of God, and you get to determine that path, which is one of the greatest lies from the pit of hell. This narrow door is a specific route, is a specific way to enter. There are not many ways, so consider this idea. Contrast this idea that there are many ways to God with what Matthew says. Matthew says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. So yes, following Jesus, that's a difficult life. It takes striving and fighting, and there's competition involved. Now, when you hear the word competition, don't mistake in it that we're competing against each other or other people. We're not. We're competing against ourselves. And in Luke 9, 23, 24, Jesus says this, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So let him deny himself. Die every day because the gift of eternal life is so much better. So if you lose your life and you give it away, you actually save it. But if you try to save your life and preserve it, you actually lose it. This is talking about legitimate repentance, and legitimate repentance always involves self-denial. 
It was Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I believe, that says the gospel invitation is the invitation to come and die. Come and die. And you may have heard the gospel presented in such a way that says Jesus died on the cross so that you don't have to. And in one sense, that is absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. That Jesus died on the cross so that we don't have to bear the wrath of God. But in another sense, it's not so much Jesus died that we don't have to. Jesus died so we could die with him. So we could die with him. And we die with him by killing our pride, our self-righteousness, our self-love, our feeling of independence and adequacy, our love of sin, worldly desires and aspirations. We deny ourselves and our status and anything we love more than Christ, anything that we find our identity in outside of our union with Christ. We wrestle it to the ground, we choke it out, we make it tap in submission, and then we crucify it to the cross. Because what matters to God is not a person's popularity, prestige, status, fame, notoriety, talent, abilities, wealth, heritage, power, achievements, or accomplishments. What matters to God is what you do with his son, Jesus Christ. What you do with the gospel invitation to come and die. And that gospel invitation is not forever. There's a time limit involved. And in verse 25, he says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. Hey, once the door is shut, it's over, it's too late. The shutting of the door signals time will end. So the offer of salvation is not indefinite. For some people, the door shuts at death. For other people, it shuts because of the hardness of one's heart. Whether that's procrastination or just outright refusal to give our lives to Christ, don't presume that the grace of God will last forever. It will not. If even you back up in the book of Luke, chapter 12, 35 through 48, Luke talks about being dressed for readiness to keep your lamps lit because the master will return. There's a time element involved that the master will one day return. So be ready. In Luke 12, 57 through 59, he talks about an opponent that you're going to court with to settle your matters and affairs before you actually get to court because once you get to court, it's game over. So there's a time element there. Settle your affairs quickly. In Luke 13, 1 through 9, Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree or the fruitless fig tree in the vineyard. They were just going to cut it down because there was no fruit. But they said, wait, let's work some manure around it, wait for another year, see if it bears fruit, and then if it doesn't bear fruit, We'll chop it down. So there's a time element to it. Do you see this, this time theme threaded through the book of Luke? And even before our passage, Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And for 18 years, this woman had this disability. But see, the kingdom of God didn't start working at the moment of her healing. No, it started working in her well before then. 18 years of faithfulness, attending synagogue every week. What she was doing prior to that was striving to enter the narrow door. And finally, Jesus heals her. And the ruler of the synagogue was upset because she was healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, man, you are missing it. You're missing it. The Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. You will be left outside the door. And back to verse 25, and once the master 
has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So here, these people believe that they knew Jesus, but they did not. And Jesus says, I don't know where you come from. And that's less about geographical or origin and more about their spiritual roots. It's their spiritual state because they're identified as workers of evil. Some of your Bibles say workers of iniquity. And this is a direct contrast with the gospel invitation to pick up your cross and deny yourself, repent from your sins, renounce your life of evil. Yes, Jesus taught in their streets and ate with them, but they refused to repent of their sins. True conversion always involves true repentance and the turning of way away from sin. And we've talked about assurance and the different ways we are assured in our faith, but there's also false assurance. And there are things that give people a false sense of eternal security. Merely acknowledging that you want to get in doesn't get you in. Having a comfortable affiliation with Jesus doesn't get you in. Oh, yeah, you know, my family and I, we go to church you know, twice a year, Easter and Christmas. And it actually doesn't scream, Christ is Lord of your life. Other Things that give a false sense of uh, assurance is altar calls and sinner prayers, spontaneous baptisms. You know, some churches have something called altar calls, where after the service, they have you come up to the altar and say this scripted prayer, and boom, you're a Christian. But if that person leaves and does not repent of their sins, they are still dead in their trespasses. You've just given that person a false sense of security. It's not a scripted prayer that saves you. So there are false sense of assurances. There's also false gospels. What, what, are the, what is the gospel that we are presenting? What's the gospel you've heard? What is the gospel saving us from? Is it saving us from unfulfillment, dissatisfaction, Poverty to pro uh, prosperity, inadequate feelings, purposeless living. The gospel is not Jesus came down and died to make the best version of yourself, to fix your finances and get your life in order. No, that, that, that's not the gospel. The gospel is the battle for your soul to be contrite and broken over your sinful state. Oh, our life issues become better. Our functioning as human beings begin to flourish, but that's a byproduct of saving faith. That's a byproduct of true repentance. Not the primary issue. And in a world that continues to cater to the false gospel of the therapeutic self and ask less and less from people who want to dictate their own reality, as gospel proclaimers, we must not give in to this temptation. The gospel call is to give everything to the truth of who Christ proclaimed him to be in the scriptures, in God's word. And we need to be clear about that. And if you truly want to give people purpose and clarity for their lives, you don't ask less of them. You ask for more. And the gospel asks nothing less of our very lives. It was someone who said, what you win people with is what you win them to. 
what you win them with is what you win them to. So if you've won somebody over to a diluted, watered-down, self-help gospel, well, that's the gospel that they've received, and that's the gospel you're going to need to keep them with. And that's the broad way that leads to destruction. And here in verse 28 through 30, Christ is going to contrast the eternal destination of those who fail to enter the narrow gate and those who get through. It's a contrast between believer and non-believer. In verse 28, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. So yes, there will be people left out. There will be people in despair. And this phrase, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the exact opposite of finding joy in the presence of God in his kingdom. It's a metaphor for a literal reality of eternal torment and punishment. This weeping means that you're at a place that's inconsolable. It's eternal hopelessness. This gnashing of teeth, it's unmitigated rage that lasts forever. And the reason why people are angry is right here in the passage where it says, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, well, it shows those outside could see inside, and they know they've been left out. That's what causes the rage. Hell is about remorse and regret forever. And this will happen to everybody who doesn't receive Christ as Lord, and it's a tragedy. And it should both break our hearts and fire us up to proclaim the gospel boldly and clearly and without reservation. So it doesn't matter if you're descendants of Abraham, or to put it in today's context, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home, or you're adjacent to the church, or you went to a Christian school, No, John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Luke 3, 8. In verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And here, this picture of this eschatological banquet this beautiful banquet with the patriarchs, with the prophets at the end of the age, not only accompanied by Israelites, but by people from all parts of the world. In Isaiah 43.5, he prophesied this long ago, for he says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Here in verse 30, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The first people who received the word of God and the promise of the Messiah were the Jews. The last people were the Gentiles, the rest of us. And this inclusion of the Gentiles in God's kingdom has been kept hidden for ages, but has now been revealed in the new covenant age 
The Apostle Paul says, this is the mystery of Christ, which in other generations has not been made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Ephesians 3, verse 4 through 7. So here, returning to the original question in verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus answers in verse 29, and people will come from the east and west, north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Wow, well, that just sounds wonderful. God will gather his people from all nations to assemble united in our worship of him, the King of kings and the Lord of glory. But understand that this is a mere glimpse of things to come. Listen to the Apostle John at the end of the age, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 12. He says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, worshiping God, saying, amen, and blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. And if you've not given your life to Christ, well, today is the day of salvation because Jesus is that door and anybody who enters through that door will be saved. So don't wait any longer. Tomorrow is promised to no one. Join the people of God who will come together one day celebrating what Christ has done. And if you are a Christian, make sure to enter the narrow door, to striving by faith, dying daily to be assured of your salvation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are and all that you do. We pray that we would leave changed in our eyes and minds fixed upon you in a way that wasn't before we came here today. In Jesus' name.